Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. I don't think there's anyone who would argue that the world is a more complex place today. All of the machines and technology that are supposed to make our lives easier have at times made it more complicated, more frustrating, and more subject to things going wrong. Anyone who's tried to operate the GPS or radio on a new BMW or even operate their television knows exactly what I mean. And this is not just about technology and algorithms. It's also about the systems and organizations that make our world work. We have embraced complexity as an operating system, but we've yet to build into that complexity the fail-safe systems that prevent all of it from spiraling out of control. We seem to be at a critical juncture where we have designed so much that can go wrong and have yet to design the internal systems that can prevent it. For complexity, it's both the best and the worst of time. Until we figure it all out, disaster lurks around every corner. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Chris Clearfield. Chris Clearfield is a former derivative trader. He's a licensed commercial pilot, a graduate of Harvard, and has studied physics and biology. He's written about complexity failure for The Guardian, Forbes, and the Harvard Kennedy School Review. And he's the co-author of a new book entitled Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. Chris Clearfield, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. Has the, all of our systems, have all of our systems just gotten to the point where they are so much greater in terms of their complexity and that's where the danger is? Or is it just that they've exceeded our kind of evolutionary biological ability to deal with such complexity? Um, it's a, a great a great opening question. I mean, I, I think there's aspects of both both things in that. Um, you know, you alluded to this in the intro, but we really think of the world today as this kind of age of meltdowns, right? We have so many systems, there are so many um, connections in these systems that these small failures can really snowball uh, out of control and lead to these really big problems. And we, we see this from, you know, the things like the financial crisis and deep water drilling to um, even things in our homes, you know, our cars are all computerized and a lot of them are connected to the Internet these days. And uh, that's a new it's a new world that we're in. And what we see and what, what our research in this book kind of shows is that we really haven't um, changed our approach uh, to dealing with these systems. And is the answer to that, in, in a simplistic sense, is the answer that we have to be thinking about simpler and less complexity? Or, on the other hand, as, is it that things haven't gotten complex enough, that we haven't been able to build in the fail-safe mechanisms, perhaps using AI, perhaps using big data, to prevent these things from going wrong in the future? I, I think a big part of it actually is is almost in between those two options. I mean, I think a big part of it is that we have built these systems that give us tremendous capabilities, but we haven't always accounted for the cost of complexity in, in an appropriate way. Um, so, you know, one example from, from the book is electronic medical records, right? So, you know, these replace doctors handwriting prescriptions, you know, there could be transcription errors, they could have bad handwriting, you know, you can't tell the dosage. It takes that error and eliminates it because now doctors are putting in prescriptions through these electronic medical record systems. But the error, the potential 
that it creates is for these errors where you have a bunch of small failures that come together and have these, you know, huge, massive consequences. Um, at UCSF the, in San Francisco, right around the corner from you guys, there was kind of a shocking error where a patient was, was given a 40-fold antibiotic overdose because a doctor had misprescribed the pill because of a unit error. She, was, she thought she was prescribing um, dose total, but she was actually doing dose per kilogram. The pharmacist missed it. And then a pharmacy robot actually packaged up those pills and filled the prescription and delivered it to the patient's floor. And, you know, that's, we've traded one class of error for another. By and large, our systems have given us a lot more capabilities, but now they also fail in this way that we're not yet prepared to deal with. Part of that argument would be we haven't invented or built the algorithms yet that could prevent that from happening. We haven't added that extra layer of complexity that's kind of an internal fail-safe system. One thinks about, you know, the early days of the Industrial Revolution, factories were really dangerous places. People were going to work and Mm -hmm. dying on a regular basis. That changed over time as the complexity of what was seen as those systems at the time were corrected. Is that the phase that we're in now? I actually think that now, I would put it a little bit differently. I think that now we're, we're kind of at an inflection point where as we add safety systems, they actually tend to add more complexity and they tend to backfire. Um, so one great example of this is the, the um, mix-up at the 2017 Oscars last year where you know the wrong film was announced as the best picture. Um, and that mix-up, when you, when you look at... Um, PwC, who, who ran the kind of backstage process, you know, they're an accounting firm, so mm-hmm. you, you would expect them to be really good at these kind of details. They wrote a lot before the Oscars about how they had this safety system. They had these two briefcases with duplicate copies of the envelopes, so, you know, somebody couldn't get lost in traffic or, or these envelopes couldn't get lost. But we actually see that that, which was explicitly designed as a safety system, that's exactly what let the um, presenter take the wrong envelope or be given the wrong envelope backstage um, and then, you know, therefore read off the, the wrong awardee. Um, and so it's this really kind of, we're, we're, I think we're, we're, we're really balanced on the, you know, we're balanced on a tightrope here where the more safety systems we add, we actually create opportunities for these same kind of failures that these safety systems were designed to prevent. Is that the future role of artificial intelligence in all of this? I think actually it's the future role of of human intelligence. I think that we are right now in a place where um, we need to shift our perspective on the way we manage and deal with these systems. We need to realize that it's impossible ahead of time because of all the connections and because of the fact that many of these complex systems are, are sort of opaque in the sense that we can't really peek inside them easily and see what's going on. And so it's time for us to um, change our approach and, and start realizing that we need to learn from these systems as they run because we're not going to be able to predict and prevent all of the failures ahead of time. Not, not to put too fine a point on it, but in, in looking at those failures as they happen and looking at, at how these things play out, isn't that the value of big data and artificial intelligence? And isn't that where it can help us in looking at these things in the future? I certainly think there's an aspect where big data and artificial intelligence can potentially help us in the future. But one of the things that we saw over and over in this book was the power of small data. Mm. Um, so I'll give you an example. We, we talked about a story of a, a nurse who 
goes to give medication to, to her patients. And there's two patients in the same room that have similar last names. And they're actually taking medicine that has a similar name. And so the nurse almost mixes these medications up, which could have been fatal for one or both of these patients. Um, and so she catches her problem. She doesn't give the wrong medicine, but then she goes a couple of steps further. She tells her colleagues about the problem. And so her colleagues know that this is an issue. Then they separate these patients so they're no longer in the same room so that the next nurse isn't gonna go in and almost make this mistake. And then finally, the hospital goes a step further and implements a policy that flags up when these patients with similar last names are in the same room so that won't happen again. And so what we see here is really, you know, if you kind of put it in big data terms, it's an N equals one, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. one case of a potentially catastrophic failure that is caught and then is processed by this organization, which is very good at learning from these small, small potential failures. And they prevent, you know, not only that, that disaster, but the next ones that might come from that. So in a sense, it's learning from, it's almost appreciating the power of small data to learn from all of the idiosyncratic ways that our systems might fail. How much does this have to do with, with the way our systems get designed, the way design thinking plays a role in that? That's a great question. Um, you know, a lot of the solutions in the book really tie back to design thinking. It ties back to, um, I, I think, a couple aspects of it. Realizing that we can't predict these things ahead of time, so we have to learn from our systems. But also realizing that we need to do a better job of accounting explicitly for complexity when we design and build our systems. And so, you know, as we're adding capabilities to these systems, to our, even to our homes and our personal lives, we need to be asking the question, like, is this really worth it? Is this something that, that's really um, going to help me relative to the cost of complexity? I, I think, you know, I have a Subaru, right? I have like a 2016 Subaru. This is not like a super fancy car, but it is connected to the internet. I can look up stock prices on my dashboard, right. which is crazy, but it also means that there's the potential for somebody who has nefarious intent to use that internet connection to come into my car. And you know, that, that's, not a, that's not an outrageous thing to, to claim because we actually saw that. We saw Chrysler do a big recall a couple of years ago when two security researchers showed that they could hack into Jeep Grand Cherokees and disable their transmissions and disable, you know, mess with the cars remotely. And so that's the world that we're living in. We're living in a world where we're connecting cars for these relatively small benefits, uh, but we're exposing ourselves to all of these kind of um, problems that come from that connectivity. Which raises the question of to what extent do we need to understand how and why things work? I remember many years ago, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it may have been, I think it was Apple, that ran a campaign that it, it just works. And, and you don't need to look under the hood. You just need to know that it works. And, and is that the attitude we have to take? Or do we have to really start to understand how and why things work? I, it's a great question. I mean, I think at some level... Um, I think at some level, com consumers are going to start making uh, kind of big, bigger choices about the technology that they inv that that we invite into our home. So, you know, you think about something like a, a connected washer or dryer, um, or you know, the kind of the the sort of hypothetical smart fridge that we might have in our kitchen that knows how to reorder milk and all that stuff. You know, I think what consumers are going to see is that. Um, 
companies that are making these things don't always have a robust approach to how they are secured and and really what the upsides are, what the capabilities are. And so I think on a bigger level, you're, you're exactly right. We're going to start making, I think, more informed choices as a consumer about how we, the, the technology that we invite into our homes. Talk a little bit about our human ability to simply process all of this information, to know enough to be able to deal with all of this. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and uh, you know, I think that there really is an aspect of um, where we see this intersection with the kind of research of, you know, the, the behavioral economics world, where really showing the limits of how humans make decisions in these complex systems and in many of the systems we look at, um, these limits are, uh, you know, when we when we make bad decisions because we kind of can't incorporate the information, it makes we have these huge negative consequences. I mean, bad decision making, you know, played a role in uh, the the space shuttle Challenger accident. It played a role in um, the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Uh, but it also plays a role in the kind of everyday challenges that we face. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that we write about in the book is a woman who is looking to buy her first uh, condo after grad school. So she's in Toronto. It's the summer. She's going around and, and looking at places. You know, she has essentially this extremely complex decision to make with all of these different factors and that she's never made before. This is her, her first place. And so she sees she finds a place on the waterfront that has a pool and, you know, is really well staged and she loves it. And she takes a couple of these options and just emails them to her friend who, who also lives in Toronto and says, hey, take a look at these. And her friend comes back and says, listen, don't buy the condo on the waterfront, right? You might be falling in love with it now, but it's August. You know, most of the time Toronto <laughs> weather isn't like this. Um, and so you are falling in love with something that's, you know, kind of not really there. Uh, and, and so by bringing in this outsider perspective, she's able to really shift her decision-making and she ends up in a condo that, that's a much better fit for her. And I think that that is just a great example of, you know, as, as people, it's very easy to get overwhelmed by something kind of shiny that we like when, when in reality there is all this information and one of the tools we can use is we can bring in an outsider to help us process through that in a better way. Does that stop us in some cases from doing things that that maybe are, are, are sort of outside of our comfort zone or are pushing the envelope if they don't have potentially dangerous consequences. It doesn't leave enough room for experimentation or maybe making what seems like the wrong decision in the short run that works out in the long run. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think what we see about um, groups making decision in particular is that um, what bringing in an outsider do, or even what just making sure that our group has a diversity of people in it. And, and by diversity here, I really mean things like surface level diversity, like, um, you know, skin color and, and uh, race and gender. But I also mean diversity in professional backgrounds. So what the research shows is that what, a, what making a decision in a diverse group does, and, and kind of also using the power of outsiders, is it lets us question these underlying simplifying assumptions that may not be correct. So I guess the way I would put it is um, what it does is it really enables us to make a better decision um, rather by kind of 
getting a real, a more clear handle on all of the information that's available by really making us skeptical and having us dig in rather than kind of going with the choice that, that you know, might, might just feel right to us or might just feel comfortable to us. Right. And so I guess the other side of that in this day and age of, of so much information being available is the degree to which there can be too much information and it leads to a kind of analysis paralysis. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, one of the really interesting things that, that sort of surprised us is that the same techniques that help groups make better decisions, the same techniques that, that you know, help us manage these complex systems, actually, they also help us innovate. They also help us sort of move faster and respond to changes in the world. So, um, you know, one of the things we looked at is how, how effective organizations manage crises. And so we're doing this research on, you know, SWAT teams and emergency room doctors and understanding how they deal with the, the uncertainty that they deal with every day. And as we're, as we're doing this research, I'm sort of looking at my personal life and I'm looking at, you know, the morning routine that I have with um, trying to get our five-year-old off to school uh, in the mornings, off to preschool. And it's like, oh, gosh, this looks a lot like a crisis. Um, and so, you know, the lesson that I was able to take from that and what we've started to do as a family is every week we have a short meeting. So on the weekend we say, you know, what worked well last week, what didn't work well, and what are we going to try next week? And it turns out that's such a powerful way of dealing with a system where we, you know, we can't control all the moving parts and we don't know what's going to work or not work ahead of time. But what it does is it helps us focus on making these kind of getting these small wins and um, then incorporating the wins into our system uh, while, you know, the stuff that doesn't work, we learn quickly that it doesn't work. So we're not metaphorically banging our head against the wall as we, you know, try to find our code for preschool. Is there a danger or, or confusion in separating systemic failure, things that happen as a result of, of systemic failure, and you give so many examples in Meltdown, versus the kind of black swan event that's going to happen regardless? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about black swans and this kind of conception of black swans is that you know, it turns out that there are actually a lot fewer black swans than we think. I mean, the way I like to think about it is, um, you know, black swans, they leave feathers everywhere. And so what we see for many events that appear to be black swans, actually there were loads of warning signs ahead of time that either people didn't notice or they did notice and people shared concerns, but those concerns were ignored by people making decisions or, or kind of the people in power. And so you know, I think that the, if you if you want to think about the black swan, this kind of highly improbable event, what you need to do is zoom out a little bit and say, OK, there might be a black swan, but let's see what are the warning signs to it. Because there's really um, fairly rare that you have this kind of bona fide black swan where there's no no warning. Um, I'll give you an example that that we came across uh, in the book, and that was the the water crisis, the lead poisoning crisis in Flint, Michigan. Um, you know, it's such a tragic story. Um, the, the Flint, when they switched their water supply, they, they didn't treat it correctly. Um, and so there was lead leaching from the pipes into people's home, you know, into kids um, and adults who were drinking the water. And there were many warning signs, both from uh, the EPA, who was concerned about this, but also from residents of Flint who were, you know, showing up with um, water samples and saying, we want our water tested 
And, you know, they were ignored for a long time. And then even when the water was tested and had just astronomically high levels of lead, um, you know, the response was, well, that's a problem in your house. Or, you know, officials actually threw out samples that had high levels of lead because they didn't want to deal with the implications of that. And to us, um, you know, it's, it's tragic and it's shocking. And I think the bigger lesson is that we need to pay attention to these systems and we need to learn from these small signals of failure so we can get a handle on it and prevent these huge issues. In order to do that, it seems that there's two things that are very important to the equation. One is a basic set of facts that people can agree on, and two is a level of trust. And to the degree that either of those things are are, are sort of out of balance, it becomes harder and harder to make those systems work. I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think what we see with organizations that have managed that really effectively, um, one that jumps to mind is, is aviation. You know, mm-hmm. so commercial aviation has become just tremendously safe since uh, in the last four decades. You know, the accident rate, even as there's more planes and more technology and more complexity, the accident rate has dropped very sharply and, and pretty continuously. Um, and what you see in aviation is you see a whole industry that is dedicated to sussing out these things that are going wrong, to finding these problems when they're near misses, when they're at the small level, before they become these huge issues. And I think the other thing you see is you see an industry that is really invested in training pilots, flight crews, how to dissent and how to talk about mistakes and how to challenge each other in a way that's really productive and and in, in a way that there's a lot of trust. And I think, you know, aviation is a unique environment, but actually we can take those lessons and apply them in many different places. Um, The fact that I think what aviation shows us is that dissent is something that can be taught, not just how to speak up, but more importantly, how to listen and how we get people who are bosses and managers to listen to people who are sharing their concerns. And I think that can be tremendously powerful. What do you think Silicon Valley gets wrong about all of this? It's a great question. Um, I I think diversity is one aspect, uh, both in professional background and in these surface level diversity things that we've talked about, you know, inclusion of of women, people um, of different different races and ethnicities and backgrounds. Um, I think that's a big thing. And I I think we see also um, with some of the kind of classic signs of, of a culture that's really uh, insider-driven. So Bill Simmons, the sports writer, he, 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 we quote him in the book. He's writing about every team should have you know, some vice president of common sense who's basically a fan, but they just bring in the meetings, you know, and, and when they're talking about a big trade or something, they just let that fan weigh in on, on what he or she thinks, um, you know, saying, oh, you shouldn't trade that. That's a dumb idea. Here's why. And I think we see over and over um, with big companies, not just in Silicon Valley, but we see decisions made that really um, have a very strong insider perspective on them. So, you know, I mean, what's happening with Facebook right now, I think is a, is a pretty good example of that. You know, if, if someone, if kind of a, a typical casual user had been brought in a couple of years ago and said, hey, you know, this is how we're going to use your data. What do you think about that? Uh, I think their reaction would have been really informative and might have prevented uh, the kind of crisis that we uh, see today. Does this require a whole new kind of decision-making then 
particularly as far as business goes and as far as organizations go. And is this something that is being dealt with or taught or even talked about in business schools, for example, today? It's a good question. And I think there's, um, you know, it, it does require, what I'll say is it does require a different approach to thinking about our systems and a different approach to making decisions. You know, the kind of typical way that we see um, traditionally managers reacting to things is is by kind of mandating stuff from the top and, you know, uh, kind of using control as, as the way to, to manage um, companies. And, and what we see with our big systems these days uh, is that this doesn't work anymore. Um, you know, there's too many small failures that can come from lots of unexpected places. And so as a manager now, what we need is we need people who are able to uh, kind of soften their power cues and able to encourage people to be able to speak up and share news about things that is not going well. Um, there's a there's a story in the book about a, a sailor who drops a tool on the deck of an aircraft carrier and you know they have to send planes to all different places to land and it, it disrupts this big exercise eventually they find the tool and the next day they have a ceremony celebrating the sailor for his bravery in reporting his mistake and i think that that is something that we need to see more of we need to see the response to bad news being to embrace it and learn from it rather than to blame people. Because otherwise, you know, you're never going to get somebody reporting the small, the small things that they see. And I do think business schools uh, have an element of this. I mean, my co-author teaches uh, a very highly rated class at his business school, uh, the Rotman School of Management mm -hmm. in the University of Toronto, which is called Catastrophic Failure in Organizations. And it's all about how managers can learn from these issues. In many cases, it takes a pretty profound cultural change to make that happen. That's absolutely true. Um, you know, and I think going back to the, the book is very optimistic and very solutions oriented. Um, and that may be surprising for a book that's called Meltdown. But, <laughs> you know, what we see is that these solutions that we talk about, they're simple. They're not rocket science, but that doesn't mean they're easy, right? And, and so I think what we hope is we hope that um, through this book and through the conversations around it, we help to sort of start a little bit of a shift in perspective in how we think about these big failures, how we talk about them, and, and how we learn from them. And I think that by shifting that perspective, we may be able to start to shift the culture of um, how we approach this across our society. And so I, I think that that's I think that that's a big part of it. I think the other part, quite frankly, is that um, organizations are going to look <laughs> and see all of the big failures that are in the world, and you know, slowly but surely, start to get better at this stuff. So you know, whether you're thinking about BP and, and Deepwater Horizon, you know, that was a, a forty-plus billion-dollar price tag, or what's going on with Facebook now, where you know their stock price is down ten percent in the in the last week, um, and that's a really um, Th those are those are things that I think executives will start to think and be more thoughtful about as they realize that their companies and their traditional way of operating are vulnerable to these kinds of failures. Chris Clearfield, the book is Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. It's just out from Penguin Press. Chris, I thank you so much for spending time with us. 
Yeah, thanks very much. And um, I wanted to mention that there is a quiz that listeners can take on our website, so rethinkrisk.net. Um, there is a quiz that looks helps them look at their systems, their organizations, and, and their decision-making and kind of see if they might be headed for a meltdown and, and what they can do about it. Chris Clearfield, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thank you.